You are listening to SequelCast 2 and Friends, part of the Tokyo Beat Podcast Network. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is SequelCast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts are best that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2 and Friends, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise one film at a time. We're kicking off uh, looking at at least the beginning of a, a series of films with... Tom Cruise in the original Mission Impossible film from 1996. I'm your host, Matt Bradley-Shergy. With me is Thrasher. Would you like to watch a movie? Perhaps something in the cinema of Russia. Sergei Eisenstein, perhaps. And Alex. I'm more of a Diga Vertov guy, you know? Yep, so, yeah, Mission Impossible. This is, uh, you know, movie came out in 96, 30 years after the TV show started in 1966. The uh, original show went from 1966 to 1973, and then it had kind of a brief revival from 1988 to 1990. And it's uh, one of these TV shows that people know the theme song, even though you haven't seen the TV show. I mean, I um, I only learned of Mission Impossible, I think, because in Nintendo Power magazine, there was a Nintendo game based off the um, the late 80s revival series that was really difficult, kind of a Metal Gear sort of uh, knockoff. Um, and this and then was late, in... Yeah. The show was in reruns off and on on cable. I think when FX launched, the fact that they had the complete run of Mission Impossible was a, was a huge thing. And, and I got to say, Mission Impossible, one of the top five television theme songs. I would say this is right up there with like the Twilight Zone, you know, like something you can walk in a room and go like, nah, 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 nah. Or, and everyone's mm-hmm. going to know what you're doing, you know. Oh yeah, it's parodied. It's it's like sampled and dropped. Also, when I uh, when I was in in my uh, junior year of high school, uh, the, the school experimented with doing a jazz band, and I was in the jazz band. The Mission Impossible theme is one of the songs we played, and to the band director's credit, there's this kind of noodly bit in the middle where we were each allowed to improvise, and this is a great song to improvise jazz over. I bet, and it's, um, you know, as far as the notes go, it's not especially difficult to play. You could have kids play it on recorder. And it oh, yeah, and you got those sound. bongos that come in. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it's it's just fun. It gets things moving, uh, as we'll see, as we'll talk through. Um, we're just going to be covering the first four films over the next month. But, yeah, you can just hear that music and, and the beat, and it's just something. I think it's almost like Ghostbusters in that way. It's this sort of iconic piece of music that can bring a smile to people's faces um i did pumped up yeah yeah a few years ago i did go back and watch some of the original 1966 uh, television series and i have to say it is it is pretty good but it's funny to see in the show so much of it is about the dynamic of the team right how is the team gonna carry out the you know titular mission impossible and in the films um and it's especially true of this first one it sort of becomes the tom cruise show oh yeah yeah, it's it's yeah because we're introduced to a team and then we lose that team and then they create a new team and then we lose that team and then we create a third team. 
Well, and that's and I, the team that eventually gets us to the end of the movie. It, it's not a coincidence either, because that was part of it, was that Brian De Palma was, um, you know, uh, someone called him up and was like, do you want to do Mission Impossible Tom Cruise? He's like, oh, my God. Like, yeah, of course. Are you kidding me? Um, so he brought on David Kep, the the screenwriter from Carlito's Way, which is the last movie he did before this, which is a mm-hmm. big critical success. And... Um, Tom Cruise didn't like some of the elements, so he brought on Robert Town. I mean, if we know anyone who knows anything about movies, Chinatown. Town. Yeah, a huge, huge deal. So you basically what happened is that you had two screenwriters. He had one in one hotel, one in the other one, and it was basically David Kep's idea to David Kep and Brian De Palma's idea to kind of give um, the the you know the um, the more attention to to basically kill off this team, and it was kind of a brilliant false start because it kind of reminds me of psycho in a way another yes. you know to Paul me in connection right is that you have this great movie star and this beautiful people and you just wipe them out well yeah, they set up at, one cat and mouse yeah. game but then give us another right. right and looking at brian de palma at this point in his career you could see that he had some movies that didn't do so well carlito's way did all right but before that you had you know casualties of war bonfire the vanities raising cane uh, yeah, those were uh, movies that, well, you know, critically might have been liked in some circles, just financially just didn't do it. So I think you're yeah. looking for something that was a big kind of like The Untouchables, which also was based off a TV show, something that would kind of blow off the walls like a big, big old hit. And, well, this was um, the kind of the golden era of uh, the, the mid 90s were the golden era of taking old TV shows yeah. and making them into movies. And it was a pretty 50 50 split what movies were sort of adapted for the screen seriously and which ones were adapted with a certain bit of irony. Yeah. And then there was I mean, like, uh, like lost in space kind of tried to do both, you know, and it just oh, didn't yeah. really work or like, well, my you're right. It, it's better when, when they pick a lane, whether it's, um, you know, the more comedic ones, like they think of, you know, Beverly Hillbillies and Brady Bunch, Brady Bunch, of course. And then, yeah, you have these sort of more serious ones. And then you had some weird, like, they kept on doing them even when they weren't too popular, like I Spy or Mod Squad, or it really was <laughs> yeah. quite a thing where it's like, oh, this is a name you recognize. And because cable TV was more popular, um, channels like Nick at Night, I think, sort of inadvertently led to a lot of people being nostalgic for TV they didn't grow up with. So A lot of producers and studios were saying, let's give it a 90s twist. Yes, <laughs> which whatever that means. But yeah. yeah um, and I, as I near as I can all, tell, I, the '90s twist means acknowledging the Cold War has ended. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, and yeah, like in May '96 when this was uh, going on, I think my parents were in the middle of a divorce. I was about to start high school that fall. Like it wasn't a great summer, and um, I, I also thought Tom Cruise was oh he's too old for this. But looking at this now, I'm like oh no, he's so young. Although I think the haircut <laughs> on him makes him look like a doofus. <laughs> We don't watching watching this movie made me realize just how accurate Ben Stiller's impression of Tom Cruise is. Oh yes, yeah. To the point where when he has his breakdown in the phone booth, I had to remind myself, no, no, you're watching the actual Tom Cruise. (laughs) You're not watching Ben Stiller doing a bit. I do want to yeah. give points to the the cinematography on this is quite good. It's Stephen H. Burham who who worked with the De Palma on the Untouchables before, but he's done stuff like uh, St. Elmo's Fire. Uh, he worked with Coppola on The Outsiders and Rumblefish. 
Um, and visually, those, I think, are two of Coppola's most exciting films to watch. Rumblefish, especially. Although it's yeah. weird, though, in this movie, I find I find the camera work very inconsistent, just that it, it oscillates back and forth very rapidly between sort of being very workmanlike, being very informational, showing you what you need to see to make the scene work. And then all of a sudden, the Dutch angle those are just cranked up to 11 and there's weird zooms and, and weird lenses distorting the frame. And it is so, so heavy handed when that's, when those flourishes come in where it's like almost like comical, like, like there, there are, there are scenes in this movie that I feel like play like their comedy, even though we're expected to take it seriously. Like, like the, like the meeting, the the strokey beard meeting in the aquarium bar, where it looks like they're <laughs> going to meet the penguin or something, and and it's just all of a sudden they just start speaking really rapidly, and the camera tilts and zooms in all weird. And I'm like, no, stop it! Just let me hear the banter. Don't distract me with your weird zooms, movie. It's it's funny because I mean, De Palma is such a technician, and he's also a, you know he's also an artiste, and I think he does these things unconsciously i think like that's just his visual language is that all right we have a spy movie we're going to do spy movie stuff it's espionage we're going to do espionage stuff but we're also playing it kind of close and serious and sober so we're going to do that but i think also it's like we have a confrontation scene so let's dutch those angles up baby um and i just don't think he can help it it didn't really bother me so much but i think that I'm uh, a big De I'm a big De Palma defender, and also I just really like this film. <laughs> well, he he likes a good camera move and and likes to do different techniques, and I think uh, to disorient the audience, of course, Hitchcock is is the famous one that Brian De Palma um, likes likes to emulate or is inspired by, and and so forth. And I was interested here uh, looking through the film, I guess. Uh, Brian De Palma was was one of the crew that was friends with Spielberg and George Lucas and kind of the the director brat pack back in the day. And uh, George Lucas recommended, and, and De Palma did this, he took out some scenes in the beginning that kind of set up this love triangle between uh, Ethan Hunt, Jim Phelps, and Claire Phelps, where Jim Phelps is played by John Voight, and then they both are in love with the same woman, Emmanuel Bert. In all honesty... I'm glad they took that out. This yeah. movie has so many things going on. The last thing it needs is a forced romantic triangle. Oh yeah, big time. And and, and there's and like, there's hints of that, which I think is enough. And there's enough going on with the story and the region. Um, I saw Lucas recommended they take it out as he said it wasn't appropriate for the genre. And I think hmm. he's right. Not that other films in the series do have kind of romantic stuff that they lean on, but I think in this, uh, this one is sort of more plot focused i think in some of the later movies and this is like uh there's like the espionage spectrum and you have like bond on one side and then you have like jean le carre on the other side you've got like tinker taylor soldier spy and then like octopussy right <laughs> and then mission impossible does this really interesting thing where it's a little bit of both you get that a little bit of that realism of like you know you'll be disavowed you're doing the cia backdoor shady shit and then you've got the hyped up you know explosive gum fun gadgets sexy stuff getting pulled you know flying into rooms with pulleys and shit like that and i think when you have like sex and romance and stuff like that like the john lakari stuff is always like much more tragic you know like you're your wife yes. gets shot by a CIA contact. And with Bond, it's, you know, it's all just all about, you know, TNA. So I think, like, what Mission Impossible does 
intelligently is just kind of leaves it alone a little bit. Which is funny because when you watch the trailer for this movie, I remember I was really knocked out by the trailer because I was a kid. I was like 10, 11 years old. And the explosions and Tom Cruise is a huge star. And, you know, they did play up the sex a lot, but it was funny because it was out of context. It was like that scene where um, Tom Cruise is um, hunting down, is patting down Emmanuel Barrett for like a bug or a wire. And they made that look like he was just like betting her, you know. And um, I remember my mom in the theater was like, oh, they're pumping it up all the sex and everything then watching it it was a very like unsexy movie you know it's funny you mentioned the trailer it was an intense trailer that really did make this film look exciting and like something you wanted to see and strangely enough we get the trailer in this movie because after our little intro business they just straight up like do a quick cut of scenes from the movie through the opening credits it is it is it is like you were watching the opening of the tv show because they would do that in the tv show yeah, it was kind of interesting. I forgot about that, too. It was very strange, but it's, it, it's weirdly faithful to the show. Really to the faithful. Point. Yeah. Like contextually, structurally, it's faithful. Yeah. Although, um, speaking of loyalty to the show, at the risk of us getting ahead of ourselves. So you mentioned, you know, John Boyd plays Mr. Phelps. And in the series, Mr. Phelps came in in the second season and stayed all the way to the end. He was played by Peter Graves, who you may know from the University of Minnesota. And you know, he was still kind of acting at the time, and it it has come to me that apparently um, they did go to Peter Graves to play Mr. Phelps in this, because they were like, oh yeah, we'll just treat it like a real continuation of the show, we'll get the original Mr. Phelps, won't that be cool? And Peter Graves was interested in doing it, because he liked, he liked the character, he thought it would be fun to go out for one last ride, but then he gets the script, like, well wait, I'm the traitor, I'm the bad guy? I'm not going to do Mr. Phelps as a bad guy. Mr. Phelps wouldn't do that. <laughs> so he didn't get the part and John Boyd did because John Boyd didn't care. Well, well but not just yeah. that. The opening team, aside from Tom Cruise, was supposed to be the original people from the original TV show. And they all turned it down because they said, well, I don't want to be in a movie to be killed off in the first five minutes. And that, like um, yeah. Peter Graves, they thought, oh, this is disrespectful to the material. And I think in a way it's good that they didn't because had they... You know, it would have seemed weird, Tom Cruise being on a mission with people like 30 years older than him. And yeah, I don't know. That would have been. Yeah, exactly. It's bit. like when they, they cast someone older and then like they feel like like if you cast, uh, you know, someone in their 30s, then their you know, senior officer has to be someone in their 60s. Right. And it's like, well, anyone in their 60s would be retired. Well, the thing is, thematically, though, that could work if only because you could use that to really drive home the point that this is a very Cold War premise trying to transition into a post-Cold War world. And this is what I, I love the Cold War stuff, because as far as like we are, as far as everyone's concerned in 1996, like what what do you do when a war that never happened ends? Right. And the mm. fascinating thing with like Mission Impossible and Goldeneye, which I think came out the same year is that it poses the question of, it, it makes you think that the lack of a non-existent war is more dangerous to the establishment than the perspective war could have been. Yeah. Which yeah. is And I think there's some truth to that. Yeah, which is like something just ridiculous just to say, right? But it's true, though, because like, you have all these espionage equipment, you have all these counter-agents and intelligence folks and counterintelligence folks and, you know, trying to poison Castro so his beard falls out and hidden explosives and all this other shit. We were busy for like 30 years just fucking with each other, hoping we would prevent, you know, nuclear World War Three, And it never happened. And then it stopped not happening and we were all bored by it. So like the most successful you see this team 
working together is at the very beginning when they're doing some shifty Cold War looking shit. Um, you even see the hammer and sickle in one, like one of the boxes when this guy, you know, goes all fucking Senator Geary on what I presume is a call girl or something like that. Yeah, and you have these movies around this time tend to have always have a character that has a, a bit of a dialogue where it's like, at least before we knew who the enemy was, now we don't know who to trust. And it's like, well, wait a second. Even when you knew who the enemy was, you still were, were killing, you know, thousands and thousands of people. And, and you yeah. didn't know who to trust even, to an even greater degree. Yes, <laughs> right. right, right. So, I mean, it's not like, it, in the you know, the more things change, the more things stay the same. If you can't find an enemy that's that obvious, you'll you'll make one, or maybe it's yourself, or the, you know, I mean, the Mission Impossible films are not about the military-industrial complex really but that is something that comes up in uh in some of these films and yeah the russia setting is pretty uh pretty cool or is it well it's the ukraine it's or excuse me sorry um in ukraine former soviet countries and it's you know it was, it was something just big in uh spy stories and and fiction in the news and and you had sort of um glasnost you know you had sort of what would seem like some sort of a peace with russia but was it a peace really and you know is all these people just sort of questioning just a lack of gorbachev i think it was i I think so too but you had but in the media you had so much people and uh oh those wily russians are (laughs) well just just to like sort of put put this into a context especially if you did not live in a pre-9-11 world so so like you know when when the cold war ended uh, you know to 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 paraphrase uh, some of the creators of Delta Green, oh well, we bad, so we have no enemies. So mm-hmm. generally, this caused sort of a split. So in the in any sort of spy related thing post Cold War, but pre nine eleven, either the reveal was the enemy was ourselves, which is what this movie does when you know it turns out that uh-huh. Mr. Phelps is in fact the mole who's betraying everybody and and ki- killing off agents, and then the other version was. Well, things are so chaotic in Russia that somebody will just walk away with a nuclear bomb <laughs> and <laughs> use it to do who knows what. Uh, and then, of course, turns out you don't need a nuclear bomb to fuck shit up. You just need a hijacked plane. Uh, but uh, but chances are most of our viewers or listeners have lived through that and, and, and already know the post 9-11 stuff. Yeah, I mean, so what the movie is about when it um, gets going is there's something called the knock list that that lists uh, all the different agents in in the cia and it's who's the mole right that's the big plot thing and well at the time i got a lot of criticism that the plot's too complicated watching this movie as an adult i don't think i've seen it since all the way through since it was in theaters um i don't think the plot is that complicated they try to make no, it seem not com- they try to make it seem complicated well the and, whole but Today's show is brought to you by Epos Gaming Audio. With a comprehensive lineup of both wired and wireless headsets, gaming amplifiers, microphones, and webcams, Epos has everything you need to experience the power of audio. Like their H6 Pro lineup, which features two versions, an open or closed headset. The closed headset allows you to tap into exceptionally detailed audio and seals out ambient noise while the open version delivers natural, high-fidelity audio with an incredible soundstage. Both headsets include a magnetic detachable microphone and a sleek design that has no wild RBG configurations. Just good design. Listeners can save 15% 
by visiting www.eposaudio.com gaming and entering code EPOSFRIENDS15 at checkout. Weather Tokyo Fresh Podcast. I'm David. I'm Jordan. We're a comedy lifestyle podcast diving into the weird and interesting side of Japan. We often share stories about our lives in Japan, you know, and how you can avoid making the same mistakes. So if you want to take advice from two idiots who have been living here far too long, check out the Tokyo Fresh Podcast. Only on the Tokyo Beat Network. The movie has very... So hold on. The cops knew that Internal Affairs was setting them up? Mm-hmm. It's... It's... <laughs> Yeah, it, it's dressed up because it really, it really is straightforward. Get the MacGuffin, find the mole. Exactly. I, yes. I think the thing that makes it seem dif- difficult and hard to follow is that these all, all, all of these characters are so smart that they outsmart themselves. Because like, like Tom Cruise, Dylan Hunt, he gets framed for a crime he didn't commit. He gets framed for being the mole and the traitor and the murderer and for stealing this list of agents to sell to an arms dealer. So how does he prove he's innocent? By actually stealing the list and actually selling it to the arms dealer. Exactly. To say, um, with the cast, the, the main sort of antagonist... Uh, is the director of IMF, uh, Kittredge, played by Henry Sersney, who I guess comes back in the latest James Bond film that's in theaters, uh, Dead Reckoning Part One, which is a hell of a callback. And he's, he's really, really camping it up. He's got he's got sort oh, of he's a great. James Bond. What? Did you say James Bond? No, Jimmy no. Combs. I said Sersney's back in the new Mission Impossible movie. Oh, I, I thought you say the latest James Bond movie. Sorry. Oh, maybe I did, but I mean he's. As an actor, I, you know, he's not kind of a known name, although he's done a lot of great work, of course. But here he's just very good, really intense. Well, I think it is most of his dialogue is in some way expositional unless he's doing something yes. cat and mouse with Tom Cruise. So you can tell, like, he, well, I'm only going to be on camera doing boring dialogue, so I'm going to deliver this boring dialogue. Right. He's got a great face for, like, being a – he's got a great face for, like, being a guy that's part of a system. Like – if this guy walks in the room, you're like, oh, he belongs to the CIA, the FBI, the ITF. The, you know what I mean? You can tell this guy is like sitting in front of monitors and knows what's going on and is capable of all this crazy shit. Right. I mean, speaking of monitors, this came out in 96 when the Internet was something that was probably not in a lot of people's homes. Uh, certainly people didn't really, unless they're pretty wealthy, didn't really have cell phones on them at the time. Uh how do you think the portrayal of the internet was? Because I thought it was very funny that he's sending out emails, having to do it through websites instead of an email program and doing it at Job three sixteen, which wouldn't even right. work as an email address. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Forgetting that that's not how email addresses work. I I am going to give this movie credit one for just using the computing technology at the time. None of these computers look like. No effort has been made to make them look cool or advanced. They are just commercially available laptops running a mid-90s internet. Um, And so as a result, it's overall very grounded. And I was kind of 
delighted that that as part of Ethan's investigation into the mole, that he spends a lot of time on the old Usenet groups, the alt dot groups, uh, <laughs> which was a huge thing back then before they were more dedicated websites and forums and such. You know, that's where you went to discuss whatever your niche topic was at your alt dot whatever dot whatever dot whatever <laughs> until you hit the niche you wanted. Um, really, the only real flourish this has is when he sends or receives an email, there's that little graphic of like the letter yes. sort of drifting into the background. And honestly, that's not too crazy. Like, I don't know if you remember original Netscape, but whenever you look something up on original Netscape, there was that little animated end that would kind of do that flourish. Right. Or there'd be like a, a, I remember like a spinning globe and like the encyclopedia internet app, you know, when you would really, search for something. The only computer thing that kind of did and all in the external disk drives for the three by five floppies that was nice uh but yeah. the only really the only computer thing that didn't quite resonate for me was the you know the iconic scene where he goes into the secure server in this yes. the, in the headquarter government headquarters that really is a room that only exists for spy movies right <laughs> well but the way that room looks with the um the white floor and, and the black kind of lines on it he looks like a bit like a spider in a web with the yeah. overhead shots i like that yeah it's not that is cool the, i like that it's not the computer controlling him uh being suspended going up and down that it's jean renault and you have like the, the rat coming. Yeah. i mean it's a good suspense sequence they do i think repeat the beat of um the the guy in the room having to vomit too many times like it gets a, a bit over the top yeah. Well, I mean, this was the scene in all the trailers. This was the scene that yes. everybody parodied because there is it's visually distinct and there's a lot going on. And it overall is a very tense scene. But again, because of the way it's filmed, like when like sometimes it's comical, like when Tom Cruise is just hanging from the top of the 30 foot ceiling and the computer technicians in the room. It's just when you see them both, it just makes you kind of want to chuckle. But one thing, I, again, I'll give this movie credit for, they explain how the room works and they explain the sort of stakes of the security system, but they don't really explain their plans. So you don't get that. Here's how the plan's going to go off with yeah. rapid well, cuts. If, they if just they do did the plan. That, right. If you did that, it wouldn't be exciting when he's on the winch and he's getting lowered down and everything. Yeah. Right. It's like, we're going to break into the CIA and take the knock list, yada, yada. The security measures are ridiculous. And you got to set it up. Right. Cause you know, but then, you know, you, you see him, like, hooked up to this, like, elaborate fucking, you know, winch thing, which on a film set is, like, the pr most primitive, easy, accessible equipment ever. But yeah, I guess that whole set, though, that was basically, like, all De Palma's design was that, hmm. like, I, you need this, like, you know, higher than stakes stakes that needs to be, like, fucking ridiculous. About, you know, the temperature and the thermometer and everything like that. And, um, like, that and the exploding aquarium were the two biggest uh, to do's on the filming of this movie. Well, in the exploding I, I felt aquarium, bad for those fish, but thankfully the fish in yeah. the aquarium were already dead, so you don't see any flopping fish dying in the streets. <laughs> yeah, they said they were prosthetics or false. Oh. They was British, so they said false fish. Um, also, this is another first one where um, they were worried about getting the take right, and they're like, "Well, the streets dry." If, uh, you know, if we if we flood that on the first take, we we're not going to be able to get it. And right. And Duvall was just like, just fucking wet the street. That's why all the movies yeah. like the streets are wet because it looks cool. The light reflects off it. And if yeah. you have any take with water or blood or whatever, it's fine because it's just going to look wet because the streets are already wet to begin with, dude. Come on. 
Okay, so you mentioned that kind of like scene continuity, the little epilogue scene where uh, Ethan is kind of chilling out with the hacker uh, at at the cafe. The levels of their drinks keep changing. I know. And you never see them drink. Yeah. Yes. It's so distracting. I think what Tom Cruise has, what looks like kind of a a lager, sort of a light beer. I mean, you don't really see Tom Cruise drink much in movies a lot, come to think of it. But yeah, I. I mean, you're you're mentioning the the aquarium or the restaurant thing where the aquarium uh, the bomb sets off and he 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 runs out, and that's so low stakes compared to what they do to promote the stunts in the modern Mission Impossible movies, where it's oh, like know, I'm going right? to jump off a I'm going to do a motorcycle up a cliff and jump off and do a parachute. I'm well, gonna, it's funny because like the physical yeah. stakes of what he's doing are higher. Like, yeah, sure, it's more high risk to hang off of a fucking jet. That's actually taking off, yada, yada. But I think, like, in filmmaking terms, it's more of a risk to time a shot like that. Like, I feel like that's like, you can hang off a plane and attach a camera to a plane. Sure, that's exciting. But it's nowhere near the technical prowess that goes into pyrotechnics synchronizing with gallons of water yeah. flying off a street with Tom Cruise, who has to jump in frame because you need to see... Tom Cruise, it's Ethan really Hunt. him doing it. Right. Exactly. You've got to cut yeah. that footage together into something coherent. Right, yes. that's... You know, far more challenging, in my opinion, than, you know, hanging off a fucking skyscraper or jumping out of a plane. You're mentioning the uh, com- computers and the technology in this. Uh, Apple paid a lot of money to have things like the laptop was a, a PowerBook 5300. However, uh, it came out the same time as the film. But at launch, they recalled all the units because some of them, the batteries caught fire. Oh, so shit. If, if someone, you know, wanted to buy the laptop uh, Tom Cruise was using, they couldn't. Furthermore, that laptop was uh, Apple's most expensive ever with on the high end a price tag of $6,500. Wow. Yeah. Damn. That's a very expensive fire hazard. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, the, the uh, computer stuff I thought di- wasn't aged too bad. Like Thrasher said, the little, the little animated, you know, when the emails got sent were a little funny. But one thing I really appreciated was that he sends the email out, right? And then what, he, what does he do? He, like, lies down. Because you know that this isn't, you know, your BlackBerry or your iPhone's not going to go, beep, 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 you have an email. Is yeah. that he has to wait for whoever's receiving the email to sit down, log onto their computer, get online, and check their email in order to get this email. So Go it, through the modem startup sounds. Exactly, yes, yeah. Yes. It's not, I sent an email, I'm going to look at the monitor for a response, you know, because that's just how it went down that back then. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so, so yeah, you mentioned, you know, you mentioned Ethan, you know, sitting down and this is one of the, the, the times, you know, as we said, the story's not that the plot's not that complicated, but it's presented in a really complicated way. This is one of the things that kind of rang false for me because Ethan spends a lot of time chilling at that safe house with a character that we will find out is a turncoat later. And all I could think of is what the agency doesn't know what safe house their own agents are in. The agency can't track its own laptops. Why does he get to spend like two days chilling in this place? And I thought that for a second too. And I think my, my, my counter to that is that when they are dispatched on the mission, it's always, you know, if you're caught, killed or whatever, you'll be disavowed, disavowed. There's a big word that'll come up through. So I think anyone outside the immediate circle will probably won't know the coordinates of where the team's supposed to go in case of an accident or what have you. That's what I was thinking. Cause at first I was like, this doesn't seem like a very safe, safe house, but I'm like, maybe that's the reason why. I mean, maybe, but then at the same time, you know, the woman who is presumably working with her husband, 
why why not just to keep the heat off? Well, I guess, well, now, I, okay, no, I take that back. He's supposed to think she's dead. He's seen her, so he, he can't just turn him in, because then he'll reveal that she's alive. So never mind, I just, turns out the movie solved its own problem uh, to an extent. <laughs> it is when funny, is though, because when you yeah. know the betrayal and you start watching it, you're kind of like, wow, how did you not see this coming? Because she's like, what? He's dead? Oh, jeez. Well, well, even then, because they make a big deal about the, cam- the the eyeglasses with the cameras in it, and when part of the reason he thinks that uh, Mr. Phelps is dead is that he sees a gun come into Mr. Mr. Phelps's frame of view and, like, shoot. And the whole time I'm even thinking, huh, that's a weird angle to hold a gun at. Well, it's because he's pointing the gun at his own glasses. Yeah. But he's holding off to the side. Right. And I, that's, I think, a... Uh, of De Palma Hallmark is like giving you that sliver of disconnect of saying like, cause when you first see it, you're already like, yeah, that's a weird angle. Who's shooting him. And obviously he's planting that seed. He's really good at planting that little seed of doubt, you know, like his wife doesn't seem that really sold on what's going on. It's like, well, again, little seeds of doubt, um, but not enough to really discredit the story, which I think is um, very, very strong direction. Well, what do we think about the after the team gets killed in the beginning? Uh, he eventually gets another team, uh, one of whom is uh, Jean Renault, who I forgot was in this film. Yeah. And then you have uh, Ving Rhames is yeah. uh, in here as well, who's in all the other movies. Yeah, I feel like. I, um, oh, you can go. I like I like Ving Rhames. So to, to this movie's credit, Ving Rhames. So I I know a couple of actual hackers. And, and crackers and like Ving Rhames is more like the real people than any other hacker you will typically see in a movie. Yeah, the hackers are like dudes with, with a code of ethics. Like his whole yeah. thing is, hey, there's no evidence I broke into that server, except that we now live in a safer world. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> like they're, they're. I remember watching Michael Mann's Black Hat and uh, Chris Hemsworth plays this expert hacker. I'm like, what's this like a beach dude and Donna Surfer guy? And then it turns out most hackers are like that. They're like these very duty guys. And it's it's funny. And I think he he's he plays it quite well. A very smooth, intelligent dude. And I will say, I think for hacking shit, I think this is probably a better representation of hacking than the film hackers. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's all like I mean, aside from the fact that he literally just types in what he wants the computer to do, when in reality it would probably be run bypass.exe, uh other than that, like, yeah, it, it, it feels like the real thing. And, and it even points out, well, you can't hack this because it doesn't have a modem. You've actually got to go to it, you know, right. because this movie has learned something that no one else has learned. You can't truly secure a network. Yes. If exactly. you want your data to be secure, just don't put it on. Yeah, don't put it on anything connected to any other thing. You can't run around with a pool skimmer hanging out your car window. Oh, yeah. The other. Th- oh, but with John Renault, I, I, you know, John Renault. I'll, I'll say complicated figure, but that's outside the scope of the uh, scope of the, the podcast. But he's good in the part. But, you know, when John Renault shows up, you immediately know, well, I guess he's going to have a showdown with somebody. Oh, definitely. He's an interesting dude because the camera likes him. He photographs well. And he's interesting to look at. But, you know, this guy's a little sketchy. Yeah. And and, and I do. And I did. I do like that moment when they're all hanging out at the hotel after getting the after getting the disc and 
to their credit, like when, when Tom Cruise is suspended in there, he does this thing where he puts one disc, he has two discs, one he puts in the computer, the other he like puts in his vest pocket. And the whole time, huh, what the hell is that about? But then in the scene, you find out what uh, what the hell this is about, where Jean Reno has, stole, has stolen the disc and is like, look, I'm just going to go and sell this myself. Uh, and then Tom Cruise is like, oh, no, no, it's not. That's not the real disc. That's a switcheroo. The real disc is here. And he keeps doing this, like, sleight of hand, you know, yeah. close-up magic, making the disc appear and disappear. And that's neat. I like that Tom Cruise doesn't trust the people he's working with and takes that precaution. That's really smart. But he does so much with the sleight of hand. And then afterwards, Ving Rhame does the thing where he practices the sleight of hand, but it doesn't <laughs> quite work. I kept expecting that to come back. Like, I honestly kept expecting, well, obviously in the last scene tom cruise is going to put the explosive gum in someone's pocket using that same trick no he doesn't <laughs> no yeah the gum comes later yeah which oh god so my friend my friend todd who is an aw- aw- awesome friend i've reconnected with him recently um he loved this movie when it came out and part of the reason was is this this movie is what everyone wants every shadow run campaign to be and shadow run was very much his thing he could not stop he could not stop talking about the, about the explosive red light green light gum which, yeah, that's a clever idea, but also just seems so dangerous because we oh, yeah, see Tom course. Cruise chewing so much gum <laughs> in the opening scene. What yeah, cracks I mean, me up, though, is that, like, it reminds me, too, of, like, like Die Hard with a Vengeance and, like, Blown Away is that you have, like, a lot of these, like, clever explosives movies, which I think is another aspect of, I think, like, pre-9-11 cinema, is that, like, you have Compound A, Compound B. Separate, they're nothing. Together, they explode. But I always thought, I was like, so what do they put in the middle? <laughs> right? There's maybe like a buffer, right? Or like a decontaminator or some shit like that. Well, actually, have you all ever worked with uh, the substance commonly known as uh, green stuff, the modeling compound? I, mean, I know of it. I haven't worked with it, though. So when you when you get green stuff, it's just like this gum. It's a strip and it's blue on one side and yellow on the other, and you mash it together until it turns green, and then you have about 10 minutes to sculpt it into something before it starts to, to really quickly harden and gets a lot less workable. And it is, it's a chemistry thing. I don't know the technical term for it, but just because the chemicals are touching does not mean they can react with each other. Interesting. So, like, it literally is the mashing up is what kind of, like, catalyzes the chemicals interacting. So that that line of interface between them will not cause a reaction. It's only when you when you mush it all up. So yeah, that, that is up. very real. I'm looking it up right now. Yeah, I have seen this before. Interesting. There you go. I was um, real surprised a few years ago. There was a, a movie about Brian De Palma that came out. It was a documentary. I think it might have just even been called De Palma. Yeah, but but he talks about this Mission Impossible film, and that originally at the end, he didn't have the sort of exciting showdown on top of the uh, train. It was all sort of handled in a smaller scene with uh, Tom Cruise and John Voight just talking inside the train, and then with I think maybe with test screenings or something, they realize, oh wait, we need. I mean, that this, this movie was started without a finished script, so I mean, there's problems with that too. But they're like, wait, we need a big kind of finish that's more actiony. Right. It's very expensive. And watching that final scene, the, the green screen and stuff, because they wouldn't let him shoot on the real train, um, understandably. <laughs> the, that, the channel train from London to France was pretty new at the time. And 
it, there's just issues with that. So they had to simulate it. I think I don't think the effects really work that well in that scene. Although, admittedly, it is cool when the helicopter goes inside the tunnel. Well, I think I, it works I, all right. I will give this movie credit because there is a surprising amount of CGI in this movie for a pre-Matrix post-Jurassic Park movie. And for the most part, I think the CGI is handled very well. It doesn't look bad. It's well composited into the scene. It's brief. So if there is a hole in the effect, you really don't have enough time to notice it. Even when like Jean Renault's knife falls into the computer room and you get that CGI shot of it tumbling, the reflections on that are handled very well. And I think yeah. in part because it's a very white, sterile room. So there's not too much to mess up. That works great. And even for most of the train stuff, it looks really good, except for that protracted pull-in into the train that lingers a bit too long. The only real CGI that I think does not work at all is when we get those shots of the helicopter in the channel, where it does just, it just looks like a, a, a bad PS2 video game. It's a I, little, I, it's a little greasy, as I like to say. Yes, yeah, a little it's greasy. A little greasy. And there's the, that awkwardly composited Jean Renault inside, kind of wobbling back and forth, like he's doing a little yeah. bit of Mario Kart acting. Right. There's um that was one of the another bit of contention with Robert Town. That was his idea of the finale was that the showdown was basically going to be like three people in a train car taking masks off. Yeah. And, and I guess Brian was like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" He's like this huge action spy yarn, and it's going to end with people in a train car taking masks off. And then he was like, you know what? Fuck it. Let's let's do this. Let's let's do the ending. And they shot it. And Tom Cruise saw it. And he's like, you know, you know, I don't think I like this either. <laughs> so I guess Robert Towns like, oh, OK, what do you want? A fucking train going into a tunnel with a helicopter chasing it? And he's like, yes, that sounds great. <laughs> I mean, that is so cool. And you do exactly wonder how everyone's going to how everyone's going to get out of it. And I like the quick thinking of of. You know, of, of Ethan Hunt, like, attaching the, the, the grapple cable or the, the cable that John Voight's supposed to escape on onto the train itself and, you know, all the complications that arise. The stuff with the helicopter blades getting really close to him, that, you know, build does build up a, a lot of tension. Really, I think the only thing, I mean, aside from the CGI, the only thing that's weird about that scene is in the build-up to it, where, like, John Voight is Spider-Manning across the top of the plane. Yeah. Or to, across the top of the 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 the, the, the train that just it just looks goofy it does right. I, although that i don't know that sort of that reminded me more of the tv show a bit where some of the things because of the technology were a bit chonky and weird i think some of the compositing is when they're outside on top of the train because it's in daylight some of the, it's, i don't know something with tom cruise's hair looked a bit weird they did use real wind machines to get the good effect on his face of of um the the speed and everything, oh, yeah. which I thought that I, was effective. The way the effects, the way like the effects affect me, I guess. Um, it's kind of like when you see like a film from the fifties, like Rear Projection, where you're like, yeah, it's visibly fake, but I I know what it is, so it doesn't bother me. It's like the mm. uh, version of the Uncanny Valley, I guess, where it's like you're watching this and you're like, okay, so I can see that Tom Cruise is probably on a prop train. And then they have a blue screen background whooshing by. So they're doing just compositing and, you know, some wind effects. I'm like, all right, so I know it's fake, but the fake stuff looks real. So I don't mind it so much. But you're well, it right, serves though, the story pretty well. Yeah, exactly. Um, but like some of the stuff of the helicopter does look a little a little greasy, a little, you know, 
it's not quite there yet, but for the most part, when like uh, the big moment where he, where, he, where he's, the explosion throws him back onto the, you know, throws him back onto the train, like it looks cool. It serves its purpose. And what, what I love though, when the helicopter blade is within an inch of his throat, that is such a thing that would come from a guy that made that has made horror films, right? Yes. <laughs> that is such a horror movie moment. Only. You know, like if Eli Roth made a spy movie, something like that would happen, right? Um, I, I think that's a very spy movie, a very horror movie moment that only only a horror sensibility guy would would be able to throw that out. Well, in in the theater, us- the very end scene of the film, I groaned out loud, and I did it again watching this movie, where he's on the airplane, and it's like, oh, he's getting another mission. <laughs> oh yeah, that that's a bit. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, I like that it's kind of full circle because that's also how the, the the movie opens with with Mr. Phelps getting that getting that mini tape uh, this in the same way, which he's very lucky nobody was looking across the aisle yeah. to see all that classified information <laughs> on the screen. It's almost like they started. it's almost like they shot the John Voight stuff and then they're like, all right, cut. Okay, Tom, now you sit in the chair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like so, yeah, I like that it comes full circle. But well, you know, the funny thing is, I think like at the time, I, I so I I did not see this when it came out. The first time I saw this particular Mission Impossible movie was last night. And if I was just watching at the time, I prob I don't know if I would have grown. I probably would have been oh yeah, full circle. That's nice. Because um, you know, keep in mind they're not really trying to build a franchise. This wasn't a franchise yet. Right. You know, like, well, where now, because we know it's a franchise, I think it does feel more like trying to bait a sequel. Yeah, the it, it's funny because I, I was, like, in love with this movie. I had the fucking VHS tape. That was, like, my big Christmas present that year. I think I, I read the novelization of it. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, cool. it, it didn't bother me so much because it, it was just, it kind of felt like a passing of the torch. Like, okay, Ethan Hunt is the new John Voight, but not a bad guy, basically. We can only hope. I'm sure they'll. I'm sure eventually they'll do one where like he is the villain, but then it'll turn out to be somebody in a in a mask the whole time. It'll be an uber uber meta movie where Tom Cruise plays himself, and he's like the franchise is over. Too. Yeah, yeah. Like instead of the Cold War ending, the franchise is ending. So that's why he's betraying <laughs> the team. You don't understand, Jack. You know the franchise is over. We're not getting another movie. I don't know why, but I sound like Jack Nicholson now. Another problem. <laughs> well, I mean, Tom yeah. Cruise oh. now. Think about it. He's sixty-one years old, and I don't. I don't know if it's fillers or something he's gotten to his face, but I think he looks very strange now. Well, he 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 looks like he's he looks like a person who's had subtle plastic surgery to kind of not look like he's aging. But we know how old he is because we were watching him yes. you know, back in the eighties and nineties. So I think it's just it's not that it like looks bad or artificial. It's just that we flat out know that it's artificial. It's, well, it's, it's too bad because I don't think yeah. he probably like a lot of people getting plastic surgery when they don't need to. Um, mm-hmm. He probably just would have looked like a. 58 60 year old dude um in great physical shape you know um and i think that's just kind of one of the unfortunate pitfalls of that well in some of the latest promotions where he has kind of the longer hair and he just in interviews he's like i just love cinema and all this footage of him "Mm, i love popcorn like eating popcorn it's just (laughs) like he's trying too hard like that with the the looks and stuff um he has that intensity that he brings to everything and that was one of the 
scenes that that came off i think it's unintentionally comical where when you know he meets john voight in the cafe when he thought john voight was dead and they're having their they're having their chat and john voight gives the really ponderous speech about the cold war ending and all that and then it just cuts to a verse shot of tom cruise who just who just goes yeah you're probably right and it's <laughs> so understated it's like he it's like that one shot is meant to mock the intensity that he and everyone else has been using the entire other film <laughs> i mean he, I think a, he knows what he's doing oh yeah oh speaking of appearances though what did y'all think of all like the the, the mask taking off stuff in this movie I, I feel like that the technology and the uh, like the the technology to do that was new, and they were really excited for it, so they used the shit out of it. Yeah, because it's like a mix of practical effects and digital. Because if you're really paying attention, you can see where they do a wee bit of morphing on the mask as it comes yeah. off, and then helps with the transition. And so, like, it's it's fun to see. And I guess that kind of mask reveal wasn't quite a cliche yet. The one thing that I will. This is another mixed bag. The one thing I'll give him credit for, because in the initial mission where everyone dies, Ethan Hunt goes undercover pretending to be a senator. But to establish that, we see that senator on the McLaughlin group. And they have John McLaughlin, who in the credits is just credited as interviewer, as opposed <laughs> to John McLaughlin as himself, which would have been awesome. But it, But the senator is played by Tom Cruise in the Senator mask. So of course he looks just like the Senator. The yeah. Senator looks like a guy wearing a mask. <laughs> a guy wearing a mask doing a Ross Perot impression. But but also, I can't help but think, wouldn't that be the one disguise it would be impossible to fake? Because this person's a Senator. Why would yeah. he be at this embassy in the Ukraine and like... You would have to actually have the Senator there and the interview was establishes this senator isn't exactly on friendly terms with a lot of intelligence agencies because his big platform is these books have been closed for too long it's time to open them so america knows where the tax dollars go i just i i just thought what if uh what if like imf accidentally like fucked up and killed him like eight years ago when tom cruise is just <laughs> <laughs> just oh god that would be hilarious <laughs> it's just cover. on call yeah. all the time the um i mean the mask thing was a big part of the original show and yet, yeah, I think with the, the morphine tech, it wasn't quite there. And a lot of the, especially early movies in the series, like to hit that note of, oh, it's the mask again and again, where it, it becomes just a bit um, of a cheat. But so, in all honesty, the final word on vi villain hero mask reveals is in uh, Return to Savage Beach. How, how so? So have you all? So if you've seen, so Return to Savage Beach, it's the final movie in the uh, in the uh, Andy Sidaris uh, Babes, Bombs, and uh, Bullets series of movies, the Lethal films. It's also the grand unified theory one because it establishes that every movie he's ever made has been part of this series. <laughs> but at the end, uh, the main villain, he's like this guy who's like wearing a mask because like a Phantom of the Opera mask because, you know, he was supposed to have been like horribly burned in like an attempt on his life. And in the final sort of like confrontation scene, he takes that off and he's not scarred. But then... Later in that same scene, while he's still having his banter with the spies, he then rips his face off again, and it's the same face, but with the hideous scar. And then they oh. keep doing their banter, and then he rips the scar off, 
And that was also part of the disguise. Like, the same guy removes three or four masks, <laughs> only to reveal that he's been, I think, on the good guy's side the whole time. Hey, hey, hey. It's worth seeing, though. It's like, if you if you want... It, it's, uh, as I said in a previous episode, it's what people who hate action movies but don't want... but don't like action movies and never watch them think all action movies are. And it is that, but it's also brilliant and hilarious and one of the funnest things you'll ever see. Nice. Interesting. Yeah, so... Yeah, Mission Impossible. I would say sequel yes to this. I think it's uh, has a lot of good plot twist uh, in there, a lot of neat locations. Um, I mean, that, that sequence with Tom Cruise dangling to get the the NOS disc, uh, NOC, excuse me, NOS is in the, with these in Fast and the Furious to make the I cars go faster. So is NOC <laughs> just like name of it's like is it not anything fancy oh. Oh, i was yeah. watching the i was watching yeah. the bonus features and i think it means like a non-operational cover non-official cover oh yeah non-official cover that's it thank you so like not your official cover but your cover i guess it sounds sure. like something they made up it does sound like something they made up and it's like oh it's the knock list but i, I like that everyone talks about it like everyone knows what it means and that there's a real one that there's a fake one all that stuff but yeah no i think it's a pretty a uh, very effective film. I, I honestly haven't seen a lot of the recent Mission Impossible films. I think I've only seen them up until four. So um, it'll be fun uh, revisiting these. Um, Alex. Uh, sequel, yes. Um, I This is the movie I remember from 1996, and I think it's aged quite well. In anything that's really dated it is just fine whatever um it's a lot of fun it's a big old slam bang action movie with some espionage it's got thrills spills and trills um no this is a, this is a good time at the movies i dig it big sequel yes i i was came into this i was going to give this a sequel no but having having talked about it despite as uneven as this is it was on balance, very entertaining. The action was on balance, very good. Like, on balance, my experience with the film actually does lean to the positive, despite the handful of things I really did not like. So, yeah, I'm going to give this I'm going to give this a sequel. Yes, you, you can kind of tell how this accidentally started a major film franchise that's <laughs> still going. Certainly. All right. Well, uh, we can move on to what you're watching. I was watching a series that had just um i didn't even know it was out and ended up watching it all in a day project Greenlight has come back oh on um, on max or excuse me hbf what they what call it max. Movie are they trying to make now well this that's the thing it's called project Greenlight: a new generation and they decide to try and make something that'll make money uh to do sort of a grounded in reality superhero sort of film huh which isn't a great choice. And the um, the person they pick, I won't spoil and say who it is, although you find that out pretty soon in the show, is someone who is pretty uh, quiet and doesn't have strong opinions. And it's pretty clear it's someone they, if it wasn't a reality show, that person might have been fired otherwise. Uh, it, it even gets to the point where at one point she takes off microphones and tries not to be filmed. 
while they're making the movie, but the whole point is they're giving an unknown person money so they can document the process. Interesting. Does have either of you ever seen the show before or not the current incarnation? I've seen yeah. I've seen some episodes from previous versions. Yeah, I know about the show, but I've never actually watched it. I think you'd find it interesting. I mean, yeah, you mentioned the horror film thing, and yeah, in season three, that was probably the one where the person they picked was the most successful. It was about the uh, John Gulliger, who is the son of Clue Gulliger, a, a real character actor um, from way, way back. And he did a, a horror movie called uh, Feast for uh, Dimension Films. And um, he's, you know, had a career during horror movies ever since. I think one of which was Piranha double d or whatever it was called three double d um, three double d thank you uh so uh and he did uh children of the corn film he's done a lot of different stuff so and that was the one that was i think the movie that was so they were so happy filming it that they had him do two back-to-back sequels because um, the dvd market was pretty big back then so it is it's just uh interesting to see how this process ends up making films that tend to lose money for the most part and when they try to figure out how to make things that'll make money, it usually works against them. But Ben Affleck and Matt Damon are no longer involved with it. They, in the new season, they insist on using a woman director, uh, which I think is a good thing. And um, although weirdly, for mentors, they have people like Camille Nanjiani and, and some other people that are so busy making movies, they can't really be a mentor <laughs> to the person during the show, which is a bit weird. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting season. I don't know if we'll get another one, but uh, Project Greenlight, A New Generation, uh, just popped up on um, the the Max app and the streaming service, rather. And, yeah, it's technically the fifth season of Project Greenlight. Sweet. Uh, Thrasher, what's something you've been watching? So I watched the new animated film that, cropped up on Netflix, uh, Nimona, which is based on a webcomic that was originally created, I want to make sure I get their name, by uh, Andy Stevenson, who uh, was the sort of like co-creator and showrunner of the uh, She-Ra animated series that was also on Netflix. Oh, yeah. Over, overall, it's a really fun, entertaining movie. I, I have heard some critics say that it's the movie that Pixar could have made 10 years ago if they weren't being hamstrung by Disney. And I think I think that is half true. If if you are the type of person who really like laments there being no gay characters in animated movies, just watch this movie. <laughs> it is lo- like it's it's loaded with it. The fact that the that there's two protagonists, there's Nimona and there's this knight. The fact that the knight has a committed physical relationship uh with another with another dude who's a knight uh is not something that the movie like plays artfully they put it right up front and like the the sort of the way the the emotions affect the relationship between the two characters is a huge part of this story that i think the movie pulls off very well that being said the way this movie is animated, it felt like they were given the budget to do like one season of an animated series and use that budget to make a movie. And as a result, there are a number of scenes where the animation really falls short of its potential and where pay attention, look at what's not being animated. You can see where they're trying to save time and money. 
Although they do kind of make up for it because the main uh, Nimona, the other protagonist, is a shapeshifter. When Nimona just starts shapeshifting, they animate the hell out of it. And they get very creative with uh, with her transformations. The one the one thing that the one thing that did disappoint me though, and I didn't realize this till after the fact because I was looking up some information on the graphic novel. Um, Stevenson has a very distinct visual style, and that style is represented in the uh, the web comic. No attempt was made to bring that style into this film. Uh, the characters look exactly the way you have been trained to expect CGI characters in a feature film to look. The only real stylistic flourish is everything has a sort of pseudo cell shaded gloss over it, <laughs> which overall works. Like it leads to some, some good images. I'm glad like nothing looks shiny unless it's an actual metallic object that should look shiny. But then there's also sort of like gaps in the, the, the movie I think needs a little bit more world building because it's one of those it's one of those things where you find out that the society the movie is set in is a dystopia but it's a dystopia nobody really benefits from and nobody seems to be invested in maintaining and yet it's maintained and but not out of inertia it sort of just is and, and likewise like a, a, a very important person in this world dies very early on and it's and it's sort of it's the type of death that would have like ripples throughout the world it's never brought up again hmm. and it hmm. may, and, and it and it makes you wonder well was there stuff in this movie about that and they just cut it because they felt it was slowing it down which I could understand but you know if if your movie's set in a monarchy and your queen dies like the well, who's taking her place? Who's running things? Is there a parliament? Like, why is anything holding together when the head of state is brutally murdered? <laughs> but no, it's fun if if you're looking if you're looking for a, a a more atypical animated film. It is it is well worth watching. The only thing about this movie I outright hate is the is the uh, the the sort of epilogue. Um, so, you know, sk skip ahead five minutes if you don't want to know. But short version is Nimona dies at the end. Nimona sacrifices herself to save the kingdom and everybody in it. But of course, the final scene of the movie is the knight goes back to like the lair he shared with Nimona to kind of pick up his stuff. And then there's like a flash of pink and you hear Nimona's voice. Motherfucker, you just undercut the character's martyrdom. Yeah. You have just drained all the emotional weight out of the ending. And it's so brief. And the fact and I have to wonder, well, was this in the script or did test audiences not like that she was dead? So they just had to tack this on like at the end of the Iron Giant. Oh, at least with the Iron Giant, it makes sense, though, because the Iron Giant is a Christ figure. Right. Mona is not a Christ figure. <laughs> it's frustrating when that happens. Um, Alex, what's something you've been watching? Um... I've been rewatching the potential candidate for this slate of episodes, which was uh, I, I watched the second of the Infernal Affairs trilogy. Mm. For those of you who might be curious, they are uh, a trio of um, Hong Kong police films um, that were made in the early 2000s that were the inspiration for Martin Scorsese's The Departed. Mm. But instead of Hong Kong, they put it in Baston. As we all know. Um, but yeah, the funny thing is, is that the 
The second one is actually a prequel, and you get the like coming up through the gang, you know, uh, syndicate, and and as well as the other guy coming up through the police syndicate, and kind of how they kind of got to their position where you begin in the first film. So it's a real fascinating thing. But what's really cool is that anyone who knows me or has been tracking the show is that I'm a big Hong Kong cinema guy, and I really like the uh, I really fascinated with the politics of the um, colonial um, handover of sovereignty to, to ma- from Hong Kong, to, from British uh, colony to the mainland China. And that's what the big climax of the second film is based around and how this uh, return of sovereignty to the mainland has these reverberating effects through both the police, um, through law enforcement, as well as the criminal underground. It's a really, really fascinating film with, like, I think a lot of, like, geopolitical uh, subtext, which I think is really fucking cool, really fascinating stuff. And I would argue it's probably the best film of the trilogy. All right. There you go. So, um, yeah, do you ever think one day we'll get, like, a Departed 2 or something? I mean, there's a possibility for it. It would be cool, um, but I don't think Scorsese would make it. I could almost see it as a series, perhaps, with like a different cast or something like that. Hmm. Right. I I just was thinking of that the other day. And um, also, most of the main characters die at the end of the Departed. Spoilers. Well, yes, but you could. I don't know. Have it be their. Kids but like, you could prequel it, like in prequel Infernal Affairs. It, certainly. Yeah. So how do you do a young Jack Nicholson? That's hard, right? Yeah, yeah. Don't don't do an Irishman, Martin Scorsese. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, no, you just you just get one of those actors from that bit on the critic from A Few Good Men. Right. <laughs> you mean Christian Slater? What am I, a freaking minor bird? <laughs> right. Yeah, just okay, Christian so Slater. That's that. a freaking lie. So we have a sequel scene on here that's quite long. Um, oh, we decided play... to do the longest sequel scene right. ever, and this is nice. when uh, this is one of the many banter scenes between Kitteridge and Hunt, and uh, they're the only people, but there are some stage directions, so we will still have a part for each of us. Yeah. So who wants to do what part? These are these are juicy. I don't know who wants who wants dibs. I guess I kind of want to do Kitteridge. Okay. Yeah. Just because I want to ham it up. Right. <laughs> Yeah, and, and this is at the aquarium uh, restaurant. Yeah, <laughs> this is all taking place. Ooh, can I can I be Ethan Hunt? Okay, I'll be the. Um, You'll be the parenthetical. I'll read the parentheticals, the descriptions. So, um, yeah, they are. This is just after all the people in uh, Ethan Hunt's team have been killed, and Ethan Hunt is distraught, and he's talking to uh, Kittredge. So. Um, Yep, why don't you uh, start? Oh, we do have a, an opening stage direction. Oh, right. Uh, after Hunt's team was killed and meets up with Kitridge in an aquarium slash restaurant. I uh, can't tell you how uh, sorry I am. I know how much Jim in particular meant to you, Ethan, uh, personally as uh, well as professionally. Slides Hunt a passport. Yeah. It's a passport visa, the usual drill. Uh, we'll work the uh, exfiltration through Canada, debrief you at Langley, throw the uh, Prague police a bone or two, you know. Toss them a few uh, suspects. Uh, you follow me? Muffled. Yeah, I follow. I think we lost enough agents for one night. You mean I've lost enough agents for one night? 
You seem hell ble- bent on blaming yourself, Ethan. Well, who else is left? Yeah, I uh, see your point. Why was there another team? What? Of IMF agents at the embassy tonight. I don't quite follow you. Well, let's see if you can follow me around the room. The drunk Russians on the embankment at 7 o'clock. The couple waltzing me waltzing around me at the embassy at 9 and 11. The waiter standing by in hand at the top of the stairs. Bow tie, 12 o'clock. The other IMF team. You're worried about me. Why? Well, for a little over two years, we've been spotting serious blowback in IMF operations. We have a penetration. Uh, the other day, we decoded a message on the internet from a Czech uh, we know as Max. The arms dealer. That's right. Max, it seems, has two unique gifts, a capacity for anonymity and for corrupting suspected, uh, susceptible agents. Uh, this time, he'd gotten to someone on the inside. He's gotten himself into a position to buy our knock list. Operation, he referred to as Job 314, uh, the job he thought uh, Gultslin was doing tonight. The list Galitzin stole was a decoy. That's correct. Uh, the actual list is secure at Langley. Galitzin is a lightning rod. He was one of ours. In, in disbelief. This whole operation was a Mohan. This whole operation was a Mohan. Yeah, the mole's deep inside. Like you said, you survived. I want to show you something, Ethan. Takes out a piece of paper and unfolds it and hands it to Hunt. Since your father's death, your family's farm has been in receivership. Now, suddenly, they're flush with over 120 grand in the bank. Your father's illness was supposed to wipe out that bank account. Dying slowly in America, after all, can be a very expensive proposition. Hunt takes out the exploding gum. So, why don't we quietly get out of here? Get onto a plane. I can understand you're very upset. Kittredge, you've never seen me very upset. All right, Hunt. Enough is enough. You have bribed, cajoled, and killed, and you have done it using loyalties on the inside. You want to shake hands with the devil? That is fine with me. I just want to make sure you do it in hell. Hunt throws the gum against one of the aquariums, which destroys it, covering his escape. And that scene kind of tells you everything you need to know about how this movie works. <laughs> that, that is yeah. one of the best lines, though. I just want to make sure you do it in hell. Certainly. It's uh, good and interesting and uh, all I, kinds of... Uh, I fought every urge to be silly. Right. And it's... Um, in this film, compared to some of the other ones, it's interesting how much Tom Cruise yells. And there's a scene where he's interrogating Phelps' wife, where he's a bit rough with her in the bedroom that brings to mind uh, Sean Connery and some of the earlier James Bond movies. Yeah, yeah that was interesting. I, 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 that stuck out to me as well. It, it, it was interesting. At first, I was like, Tom Cruise is doing like that cool, not cool, but like he's doing a good like PTSD spy moment thing, you know, where he's all mm-hmm. dazed and fucking disheveled and shit. But um, yeah, when he's manhandling her, it's a, it's a little strange. Especially because he seems more engaged uh, in that scene than he does in, like, romantic scenes in um, Eyes Wide Shut. It's one of the moments where his intensity kind of backfires. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit... Well, and then that she continues to work with him, although she has reasons. But, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, 
going back to that one. So next week we're talking about a movie that a lot of, uh, you know, people have been ranking the Mission Impossible movies lately because the new one is coming out. And people are say this might be one of the worst ones. I don't know if I agree with it, but I do like, especially in these early Mission Impossible films we'll be covering, uh, they use very distinct directors for each one. And so they all have a very different sort of look and feel to them. And Mission Impossible 2, also known as MI2, Ugh. is directed by John Woo. So. Woo. Woo. Dove. Dove. We love the, yes. Dove's yes, motion. The, the, 245. the soundtrack, uh, the, the, uh, the score album has just flames in the background with doves in front of it. So. <laughs> I believe that's the one. The second one is the one with the uh, the Limp Bizkit song, which yes. uh-huh. would have outlived the franchise if it hadn't gotten more sequels. Uh, Limp Bizkit. Oh, yeah. As I said, it's, it's a theme song that's that's just made to be rapped over, and that's what they did. It's a mission yeah, I saw Mission Impossible 2 in the theater with my aunt and uncle, and um, yeah, that was kind of a, a weird one, because I think people were expecting more of a spy movie, and instead you get, um, well, kind of John Woo, it is Hollywood John Wooist. I think he's yeah. like, they're never going to give me this much money again, so let's just <laughs> get crazy with it. Because I think after this film, didn't he largely retreat back to, um, or not retreat, but he went back to, to China just to do movies over there? There was uh, largely. He did Face Off and then I think uh, MI2 by John Woo. Yeah, before that was Broken Arrow. That was his. Yeah, Broken Arrow, then Face Off was the other big one. I'm going to take his face off. His face off. I'm fucking Nicolas Cage. And I, I can't do Nicolas Cage. <laughs> With the notoriety well, that, that act, film has, sorry. isn't it kind of shocking that we haven't gotten another one? Um, they've been talking about it. We'll see. Oh, Face I Off? Was, I was mistaken. Yeah, Face Off. But he did yeah. do two more American films after... Wind Talkers, yeah. Wind Talkers oh, with Nick yeah. Cage and Paycheck with Ben Affleck. And then he um, pretty much... Although it looks like he's doing a American film with Joel Kinnaman called Silent Night. Okay, he did the Red Cliff twosome, which was actually pretty good. The Red Cliff yes. movies were pretty decent. And um, for those who might see Red Cliff and go, haven't I seen these characters before? It's the same uh, characters in the video game series, uh, historical game series, Remains of the Three Kingdoms. Oh, cool. With, uh, with Lubu and all that. But yeah, Red, the Red Cliff stuff I thought was pretty cool. Big 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 epic. I I started watching Manhunt in 2017 and I couldn't I couldn't get through it. It was pretty bad. <laughs> it's too bad. Um, but I mean, yeah, this guy was everywhere, and to see him, uh, I mean, also Chow Yun Fat, right? Isn't someone that really did too many American movies? Yeah, he. Not- did like what was the the big one was um like the replacement killers was a, his first big hollywood movie i think yes and he did a small part in like pirates of the caribbean at world's end but yeah i don't i don't think he quite caught on and they were trying to make him catch on it's it's too bad he's so damn good oh anna in the king remember that oh god oh, yeah, yeah. jordan yeah. foster 
Yeah. My homie there, Jodie Foster. See, now I'm just imagining her doing that with her uh, Clarice voice. I know. <laughs> I'm here to educate the children of the King of Shyam. <laughs> you like that kind of thing, children. Teaching them things. <laughs> yep. Very Don't good. educate the Clarice. The funny thing okay. is, John Woo was originally known as the new king of comedy. Eh. Back back in the day, he was doing a lot of these like kind of goofy Raymond Chow like um, ensemble comedies of you know people like falling over and hitting their heads on things and doing silly shit. They're actually, not it, that bad. It's always funny what gets people's attention when um, filmmakers decide to go to the West, and then they some of them seems kind of you know let down, and some of them don't. But like. Uh, because Jackie Chan tried to do the United States a few different times. Oh, and, yeah. Um, um, he's been, they've been trying to figure, they, they never know what to do with Hong Kong stars. Like, I mean, no, not really. he did the, the protector in like the 80s and uh, that didn't work. He had to re-edit the ending. And then, I mean, Rumble in Vancouver, I mean, Rumble in the Bronx. Um, yeah. You know, it's got some great action and stuff. Yeah, in it, the, but. The, the Rush Hour stuff, I think, did well. Um, I actually, although I prefer the ones he did with Owen Wilson. I thought those were okay. Um, oh, the Shanghai, whatever, yeah. Shanghai night, Shanghai noon, yeah. Yeah, those, yeah, those are fun. Bad. Yeah, something different, but um, yeah, I don't know what it is. Like it's just they they either want them to do the same thing but tone down, or they want them to they just kind of make them do the same stuff over and over again, and then they get sick of it. Yeah, that's the thing like, too. Yeah. Is that like if someone like tells me that there's like a good american action film i'm like you obviously live in a world where hard-boiled and the killer don't exist sure but yeah so john Wu, uh mission impossible 2 we'll talk about next time um you can follow me on twitter at m-a-t-w-b-t uh, alex uh you can follow me on twitter at crab nebula 1914 you can also check me out on letterboxd it's just my name alexander miller that's easy right <laughs> yep and Thrasher. Uh, so you can find me uh, on Instagram at WT2Art. Uh, also, uh, I do have some, I finally have another book out. So it's 100 Oddities oh. for an Alchemist, an Alchemy Lab. It's published by Skirmisher Publishing. Uh, it is currently available on drivethroughrpg.com uh, and a number of uh a number of other uh, websites that sell gaming PDFs. But it is a, it is we keep outdoing ourselves, but it's probably one of our most uh, robust uh, books in the Oddity series. It's 30 pages. Uh, it has an addition to the uh, table of 100 oddities, which I co-wrote with a number of other great authors, and I provided all the illustrations. Uh, it also has a table of alchemical reagents, uh, and also I believe... Of course, I just need to. I just need to bring it up. There's one other. Uh, there's one other bonus table. Let me see here. Please apologize. We we can we can edit out this uh, silence. I should have just brought the PDF up. Ah, here we go. It also has a table of improbable potables, which are drinks, some of which may or may not be potions, some of which may or may not be libations, but interesting things to spice up any uh, tabletop RPG uh, game that is going to involve a lot of alchemy. But this was really fun to do. I really enjoyed uh, I really enjoyed the illustrations. 
Uh, see if you can spot any of the uh, pop culture references I have hidden in the illustrations or some of the oddities. There are some deep cuts in there, and I <laughs> challenge you to find them all. So nice. 100 oddities for an alchemy lab by Skirmisher Publishing. And uh, I do believe uh, one of my co-authors on this was Clint Staples. Um, I believe Clint Staples, unfortunately, passed away uh, prematurely due to a heart attack Uh in kind of the middle of the pandemic. Uh, and uh, I believe this is the last oddities book we ever actually collaborated on. So it's, it, it's release has kind of an emotional significance for me as well. He, he was a fantastic collaborator on these series and they are not going to be, the series is not going to be the same without Clint Staples input. But the series is continuing. The plan is to have the series continued. I currently cannot say what the next book in the series is going to be, though. Okay. Well enough. So, yeah, great. Um, for sequel cast two, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. This is Alex. Same. This podcast will self-destruct in five seconds. Also like lasagna, don't get any on you. You know, we really should just cut in like a weird explosion sound with the Wilhelm scream. Yeah. <laughs> right. Your mission, if you choose to accept it, is a mission that you can choose to accept. I'll talk about this next time, but isn't that weird? Because if he doesn't accept it, how would they know? He has no way to contact them back after getting the mystery tape. Wasn't yeah. that funny, too, what a to-do it was to watch a movie on a plane where you pick out the movie? <laughs> right. That you get the tape and you stick it in the... I mean, I don't, I don't think I even saw a plane that had that stuff uh, on right. it. Right. Oh, la. gosh, that was something that I had meant to talk about, was that we see a lot of people smoking on planes. Which, even yeah. at the time, I don't think you could do anymore. No, in the 80s, you could do it. Um, it, it felt very European. I was like, maybe you can in yes. Europe. Oh, oh that you're also be. like international flying, so you're probably flying to America. So, yeah, and um, yeah, I just don't like Tom Cruise's hair in this movie. I like it much better in the second one. <laughs> it's very long in the second one. It is, and um, it looks cooler when you get hit, which is a very Hong Kong thing. Thank you, John Wu. <laughs> It's true, though. It's it wet, like water yes. fly everywhere. There's more action in your longer hair. Yep, and the, um, oh god, all the guitar in the version of the uh, Mission Impossible theme in the third one's, in the second oh, yeah. one's pretty funny. And the reason why is because Hans Zimmer heard the Limp Biscuit track and he's like, oh shit, I have to make it sound harder than this does. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> it was his thought. Hans Zimmer kowtowing to Limp Biscuit. I never thought I'd see the day. Yeah, I wonder if he regrets that, or I don't know. I mean, Hans Hans Zimmer is a very busy man. True. And.